Hello and welcome to Def Leppard, the officially unofficial Def Leppard podcast. Today we will be discussing 2008 songs from the Sparkle Lounge. If you don't know it, stick around and we'll tell you all about it. If you do know it, stick around and see if you agree with the lads. But who are the lads? Well, first up, we may be approaching the end of Def Leppard's podcast residency in your life, but we have time for another first-timer all the way from Texas is Raj. And then next up, he could give both Steven Spielberg and the National Archive a run for its money. It's the man behind all of the best bits of Def Leppard footage on YouTube. It's Andy. And finally, another YouTube sensation. Steve Vai isn't fit to tie his shoelaces. Joe Satriani is always on the phone asking for tips. It's your guitar hero and my guitar hero, Ben. Fellas, welcome. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having us. There's no way I'm living up to that introduction. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for that, Neil. Yeah, hello. So with our opening questions today, we're going to use the opportunity to expand on the different perceptions of songs from the Sparkle Lounge. We're going to start with one fan, which is going to be Raj. Then we're going to talk about the collective of Death Leopard fans, and Andy's going to take the mantle there, and then... Ben is going to talk about the band themselves. So, Raj, we'll kick off with you. Just give us your general thoughts on the album that we're discussing, Songs from the Sparkle Lounge. What's your relationship with this album? What do you think of it? Yeah, so I uh, I actually really like this album. Um, and it's probably the first Def Leppard album post-retroactive where I, um, you know, after one or two listens, I was content with it, very happy with it, wasn't overly breaking it down. And I wasn't necessarily wanting the band to sound like they did back in the Hysteria, Adrenalize, Retroactive days, you know. Um, and I think a big reason for that was the band themselves uh, weren't chasing a song, you know, on Slang. Obviously, they were chasing something completely different, right? And I love Slang. That's the album post-retroactive that I listened to the most. But then on Euphoria, they were trying to go back to their old sound. Um, but obviously with Vivian in the band instead of Steve, so it was never going to sound quite the same. And then on X, they did something completely different. <laughs> they were maybe trying to chase a something way more pop, maybe more like the Backstreet Boys or Britney or something like that. So I felt like this album, because the band kind of let go and just recorded a rock record, kind of straight ahead rock. All of them wrote on it, which was great, um, you know, other than Rick Allen, of course. And so for me, it was kind of the first Def Leppard album where I got to hear the the Vivian iteration of Def Leppard, you know, without them trying to sound like somebody else. I mean, I think a lot of that was influenced by, yeah, I think it kind of reconnected them with their roots. But I think maybe even moving on from Pete to, to Ronan and then them producing themselves, it maybe took a couple of layers of production or shine the album and it sounded a little more just a little more straight ahead which is what i've been wanting had wanted to do throughout the night so yeah i really enjoy the album it was for me one of the better guitar driven albums that the band's written they went kind of back to crunchier guitars um, the solos on the album are excellent you've got viv and phil kind of riffing off of each other which on, on several songs which I love. It's today. I put two albums in front of you. Which one are you listening to? Sparkle Lounge or Adrenalize? Adrenalize. <laughs> did, you say, did you say Adrenalize then? 
Yes, yes. And that's just, uh, and you know, Neil and, and Andy, you probably are the same way. We're all about the same age. That, that like post hysteria up to the slang era was where probably all of us became Leopard fans. And it was just kind of that way, I think, post Steve and retroactive coming out and all the B-sides that were coming out at the time. Um, so that's just a special time in Def, in my Def Leppard fandom. So Adrenalize always has that soft spot for me. Okay, let's talk about the last special time. Sparkle Lounge or X? Sparkle. <laughs> Sparkle Lounge, you said. Sparkle Lounge or yeah? <laughs> Ooh, that's a tough one. I like them both for different reasons, but I'd pick Sparkle. Uh, because it is a true Def Leppard album. I can't believe you asked okay. that. Okay. All right, then. Cool. Right. <laughs> okay. Moving on to Andy then. Okay. So let's go from one Def Leppard fan to lots of Def Leppard fans. And I put this argument to you, Andy. Songs from the Sparkle Lounge is the least discussed album. It's like all opinions about Songs from the Sparkle Lounge disappear into some sort of sparkly Bermuda Triangle. So, firstly, do you agree with my premise? Two. If you do, why do you think it is? And thirdly, do you think it deserves to be on fans' radars more than it is? Yeah, I agree I agree with you on the first two points. And also on the third one, yeah, because I think I think when it came out, it was definitely met with good reviews. And I, I was looking through them today and I picked up just a couple of little sound bites I thought I'd throw in there. So these are UK magazines, bear in mind. So Powerplay magazine gave it nine out of ten. There's a palpable feeling of rejuvenation, hunger and freshness that oozes from every note. Kerrang gave it four out of five. This is a proper Def Leppard album, and that, 20 years after their heyday, is something to celebrate. And Classic Rock gave it an even better soundbite, seven out of ten, their most varied and satisfying album since Hysteria. But I think also all those positive reviews carried on through the online community as well. I can clearly remember, you know, back in the days of the old official forum, you know, before Facebook discussion groups and all that kind of stuff, majority of people were positive. And I think, firstly, it's the first new album after, what, six years after X. And also, as Raj touched on, it's a much more guitar-orientated album than X as well. So I think that helps it quite a lot. But I think going on to the second point about why it's kind of fallen into an abyss somewhere, I mean, a big reason as well is that no matter how good a new album is, you know, we like we like the, we like the new album, just uh, Diamond Star Halos. But, you know, they're pushing that live. They're playing two, three, four songs from it a night. But just like with Sparkle Lounge, they did the same. They're playing three, four songs a night. But once that tour's done, they're kind of chucked away to the side, forgotten about, and it, everything reverts back to promoting all the big albums again, Asteria, Adrenalize, Pyromania. So, you know, from the band's point of view, they don't push them very much further once the tour's done. But also, I think, in the case of Sparkle Lounge, now, maybe this is down to the fact that it was the last album for Mercury and they wanted to get out. Maybe the fact it was recorded on the road, I'm not sure. But I think once you sit down and analyse the songs after a while, you come to realise that they're all the same sort of structure. Every single one of them is like verse, bridge, chorus, verse, slightly changed bridge, chorus, solo, and then the copy and paste in the first bridge and chorus to finish it. And that's the same through every song. And I think it maybe lacks some of those layers that when you pick up a slang or adrenalize a steer pyromania, you're always picking out sort of new details. And I think Sparkle Lounge maybe is just lacking a few of those. So I think that's a factor in it as well. 
But going back to your last point about does it deserve recognition? Absolutely it does, because, I mean, there's some really, really good songs on there. And for me, and I still think it now to this day, is that those opening three tracks for me are arguably the best three opening tracks since Hysteria. I think it's really, really strong. And also, you can't deny that the sort of release of this album and the whole Sparkle Lounge era was another massive step in sort of rejuvenating the whole career to where they are now. So, you know, any fan that doesn't give it much attention or hasn't listened to it, I'd say to give it a chance if it's not on your radar because it'll surprise you. And one of the, you've just asked the question there, Sparkle Lounge or Adrenalize. I might always pick Adrenalize, but what that means is that when I pick up Sparkle Lounge and I think, oh Christ, I haven't listened to these for a long while. There's some bloody good songs on this. So give it a chance. It is a good album. And it is an album, I think, that still, it can surprise you in terms of, I've always been a big flag waver for songs from the Sparkle Lounge. I think it's much, much better than people realise. And it's an album I actually do return to quite a lot and listen to quite a lot but even with that in preparation for this episode last night i sat on me with my comfy chair turned my lights off put my speakers on really loud and i listened to it from front to end which isn't very long by the way because this is the shortest death leopard album from front to end twice and i was like bloody hell this is really good there's some really really good stuff on this don't get me wrong there's some bang average stuff on there as well but there's some really really good stuff so it's one that's still where the sound of it still surprises me. And talking of sound, Ben, we'll come to you next for you for your opening question. We're going to move to the band themselves and what we actually hear on this album. So, with the arguable exception of Adrenalize following Hysteria, Death Leopard albums tend to sound significantly different from the one before. Although, as I say that, Diamond Star Halos probably doesn't sound that different to the 2015 Death Leopard album. But anyway, so well, it's definitely the case when comparing songs from the Sparkle Lounge to its uh, predecessor, X. So how is Sparkle Lounge different to X in your ears? And how's the sound evolved over those six years between 2002 to 2008? It's quite funny because thinking about it a bit more, I, I, I find that I like Sparkle Lounge and X or I enjoy them for, for kind of opposite reasons. I, I quite like X in terms of, the production, how it sounds. I like Sparkle Lounge more for maybe the songs. I feel if you put both together, um, it'd be like one one epic album where they, they, they get it right. It's funny you were saying about listening to Sparkle Lounge and, and appreciating it, you know, front to back a couple of times. I tried to do that, um, you know, over the week here and people might have seen, I did a video where I ranked the, the Def Leppard albums and I put Sparkle Lounge at the bottom, but the main premise of my video was albums that I get the urge to listen to when I'm driving in the car. And I feel as though with the, with the album like Sparkle Lounge, I'll, I want to listen to it because the songs on there I enjoy. It's just something about how it sounds which just fatigues my ear and I just don't get the urge to listen to it as much. Um, and even after doing a full run through, I enjoyed it. I enjoy the songs. I just feel as though it just, just doesn't quite have that sound that I'm used to from Def Leppard. I'd say X more so does in terms of its sheen and polish. Raj touched on that there. But when you actually delve a bit deeper in, you do see where the, the opposites lie. I mean, X was a very collaborative writing album. I think um, all the songs were co-written between most of the band. Even Rick Allen features on all the songs that weren't done by the outside writers on um, unbelievable and long, long way to go. Um, so it's two songs from X. Two songs on Sparkle Lounge are the 
the unique ones in being co-written between two or three members of the band. And it's the, you know, one, one of them is with Tim McGraw. The rest of them, are, they're all they're all solo songwriting credits. That I think that's a massive difference that you can hear on that album. And um, I was looking through some quotes and the little series of videos Joe did, and um, I think it was a few years ago now, where he was, he was talking about the albums on YouTube. Um, and I think he even mentioned this on the, the DVD extra from Sparkle Lounge, is that when they were bringing the songs to the table, they, they thought if it was a song that was ready, they'd just record it. There wasn't really as much of a push to change things around. I think that they kind of respected each other's ideas more so. And I think that that's one of the main differences you can maybe hear in there. I don't want to say a lack of quality control because I, I do really like the songs on it. But what, what Andy mentioned on there about just maybe noticing all the song structures are the same. I think, again, you could maybe easily see that's come from everyone writing on their own, wanting to create that type of song. If they were writing together more for these songs, they might have thought, well, we've just done that structure for that. Should we not change it up a little bit? I think you can definitely see that come through on, on how it's been written. There's another few quotes as well about um, the, their, their kind of process of what they were trying to do with, with Sparkle Lounge. I remember reading so many times about it was a cross between hysteria and high and dry that they wanted the hysteria type of songs, but with the high and dry production, you know, X was all about that pop sheen and maybe, yeah, maybe X, X lacked the kind of guitar element of it. Sparkle Lounge does have a lot more guitars, which is great. Um, I just think it's, it's less cohesive in comparison. That was the question I was about to ask you in terms of as our resident guitar hero, Ben. Does it float your boat from a guitar point of view? Oh, for sure. It Re- really does, yeah. There's lots of great riffs in there. Um, Raj had mentioned it. it's back to just harder, harder guitar-driven songs. And as we'll touch on when we go through the tracks, there's some songs in here that I think if they're on other albums, they, they would have been, they might still be playing them live today. Um, this was a really fun guitar guitar album. And the solos as well. I felt also, especially in comparison to X, like Phil... Phil's solos on this, I think, sound sound a lot better than, than they did on X. And Viv gets to shine a lot more too. Um, so it's, it's great from that point of view. I've got a recollection as well that when you were talking about difficult guitar solos on our These Guitars episode, still proud of that, um, the name of that episode. They <laughs> absolutely didn't get the credit it deserved. Still quite disappointed in that. But anyway, I'm sure in that episode, it was a song of songs for the Sparkle Lounge, just solo, where you said it's possibly one of the most difficult ones. Was it only the good die young, or am I just imagining that? It was, yeah. Yeah. And the fact that I, I put that in bold on my notes there, that that's possibly my favorite solo of the album. And that 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 was the note I put in there as well. It's hard to learn. And also I, I forgot when I was listening back through some of Viv's stuff on Go as well, which we'll get to. That was pretty hard. But yeah, that was that's a good one. That, that's my favorite part of that song. So when we go track by track later and we get to Only the Good Die Young, are you going to whip your guitar out and play the solo to it uh, behind your back or something? <laughs> I'll need to get my video up and just uh, see if I can see. Oh, yeah, I'm playing that fret there. That, yeah, but I don't think I'll need, I'll need a week to build up the muscle memory, Neil, I think. Can I just touch on something there, what you mentioned there about the, uh, the production and whatever? I think, I think also a factor in this album is that when you compare X which is arguably one of the best sounding production albums that they've, they've ever made. There's, there's something vastly different about Sparkle Lounge. It also almost sounds like compressed to my ears. You can hear it, especially on Nine Lives. It just, just doesn't sound as good. And I don't know whether it's the mastering, the production or, or, or what. 
But, you know, in the sort of modern era of the band, since Mutt uh, joined them in 83, this, this is arguably one of the worst produced albums, I think, from that, from that period. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's why um, it kind of fatigues my ears when, when I listen to it. And I don't know what that's down to. Um, I've got notes here talking about the, the aspect of, of people writing more individually. I don't know whether the process was they would bring their demos and they would just record as is and then they just try and make them sound a little bit better and of course we're getting in the stage now of music production where things are getting mastered compressed more i don't know whether this is where they first start recording purely digitally where they're not using like analog tapes anymore i'm not sure when that stopped but you know of course they're they're using it's now ronan McHugh, who was well he's still with with the with the band now but he he started assisting with with Pete Woodruff. I think he did a couple of things on slang, and then more so with Euphoria. So that's that's a big change there, like 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 was mentioned. But yeah, definitely, I, I agree with that. It's I don't think production wise, it's 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 good at all. There was something that Phil said in an interview, and I forget where I heard it now. Whether it was on that Rockline thing or, or whether I read it, but he mentioned that there was a couple of songs, and I forget which songs they were now, where the his solo was recorded on his laptop and they used it on the album. So whether the technology just wasn't as good then, I don't, I don't know. Over recent years, as a, as a man in his mid-40s, I've obviously gone down that route of buying record players and, and all sorts of hi-fi stuff and everything and watching audio file videos and all of this stuff on um, YouTube. And they use a lot of language that never really sort of like makes sense but i think the one that does make sense for this is something called a sound stage which is apparently if you've got your if you've got two separate speakers and stereo a good sound stage when you're listening to it it doesn't sound like the music's coming from the two speakers it sounds like the, the, the sound is coming from the space in between so it almost like jumps out of the speakers and creates its own sound stage and it's it's beyond the boxes of the speakers with this album, it sounds like it's coming out of the speakers. While if you put on Hysteria or even Diamond Star Halos or something, it doesn't sound like it's coming from the speakers. It sounds like it's coming from the space in the middle of it. So that's the only thing that I can articulate it in terms of the actual sound of it. And you can hear that if you listen to it in a particular setup. But on the sound, I was wondering, I think this might be the first album they maybe fully recorded in Joe's Garage. I can't remember if parts of Euphoria were recorded there or not. I know on the DVD extra, Joe was kind of talking about the studio and how he put it together, and which is funny because I actually, I actually like it. I know what you mean about it fatiguing the ears a little, but I do, I do like that lesser production on this album. I don't know if it comes from my my ex- expectation from from Def Leppard. You know, always having Hysteria as the benchmark. That I think with the way they write as well unless they're taking that massive departure to something like slang, if they're writing something and they're saying themselves, oh, we're, you know, it's like a stereo. And then they're mixing it with a, with a production aspect of something like high and dry. I don't want to say it's coming across as lazy or like less efforts put in, but I think, I think it's kind of hard to mix those two together. I mean, one of the main things for me on this album is that even on some of the epic tracks or the quote unquote epic tracks, you can hardly hear the snare at all. And that, that for me, that uh, the snare is a really big part of like that Def Leppard foundation. And, um, you know, when you're having so many things going off, 
I mean, there's still a lot of great vocal harmonies in there. There's still three or four different guitar parts going off. The more you add in, you have to think about space sonically, and I don't think there's any space for the snare in there anymore. It's interesting, because I do think, you mentioned it earlier, Raj, that Sparkle Lounge seems a more honest album of the, what that band what the band is at that time. X certainly isn't. X is, you know, then maybe trying to be a pop band. Maybe Sparkle Lounge, look, this is us. This is how we make records. This, you know, we're not hiding anything. This is what we can do. So I, I do appreciate from that angle. Um, this thing it has a has an odd relationship with me, really. You touch on a good point there because one of the one of the things I'd written down here was it, it was almost like that um, some of the songs needed more work on them in terms of maybe expanding them, making the, the snare more uh, focused because you're right it disappears it disappears or it's buried in the mix, and you know that's traditionally one of the sort of it is the focal point of the band I think a lot of times on on many of the songs. You know, it it is even on uh, the the new stuff as well on the on the new album. So it's disappointing whether that's lost in the mix afterwards or the production or it's intentional because they kind of dialed down sort of Rick's sound that he was going for. They, they did it on X on a few songs as well, I think, but not to the degree that they do it on this album. And I think yeah, it's quite similar sounding as well. That sounds quite compressed as well to my ears. It doesn't sound doesn't sound as big and as full as they normally would do. Maybe it was a conscious decision. I don't know. I read that they spent in total, in terms of writing and recording, do you think it was about four months that was spent on this album, which in Def Leppard world is nothing, you know, as well. And I, I, you, you mentioned earlier about the technology. I do wonder if it's one of those things, you know, like the way on the uh, Star Wars prequels now, the CGI looks terrible because it wasn't quite good enough. I wonder if all of the mobile recording equipment and all of this stuff that they've, they've used quite a lot, in 2008 was really good or to say 2006 to 2008 was really good up to a level but maybe just not quite good enough to get the production you get um, in like a proper studio though I think a large part of this were recorded in Joe's garage and everything so who knows who knows right then should we do a bit of background so I'll take your nods as a yes nods nods always work well on podcasts <laughs> So some background. <laughs> Songs from the Sparkle released on the 25th of April 2008 or the 29th of April 2008, depending on where you were in the world. And it was Def Leppard's first studio album of original music for six years. So in a career of huge gaps between albums, this was the biggest gap there had been at the time. Although it was followed by seven-year breaks on two occasions between Songs from the Sparkle Lounge and the 2015 Def Leppard album, and between Def Leppard album and Diamond Star Halos, respectively. The album was pretty well received in the States, Canada, and the UK, charting at number five, number seven, and number 10, respectively. New Zealand wasn't that keen, I only got to 26. France hated it, it reached 118. Norway reset the balance a little bit with a respectable chart position of 15. Two singles were released, Nine Lives and Come On, Come On, but we'll discuss them shortly. And the title of the album comes from the formation of it. So the Sparkle Lounge was the name given to the backstage area prior to 2008, where many of the songs were worked out while Def Leppard were on tour. I heard on the Rockline show in 2008 put on YouTube by Kurt Taft. Phil or Joe says on that that songs weren't written in the Sparkle Lounge, but people bought ideas. What the fuck was that? 
My fucking dog. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> she's old. <laughs> Just, all I hear is, <laughs> the songs weren't written in the Sparkle Lounge, but they were worked on there with the band members bringing their ideas to the Sparkle Lounge. And Ben, you mentioned this already, but talking of songwriting, Sparkle Lounge was very distinct at the time because of the 11 songs, a whopping nine of them have just one credited writer and only two were collaborations across the band. And a couple of little facts. It's the shortest Def Leppard album. And also, as Andy mentioned, this was the last album for the record company that they've been with since 1980, um, essentially, um, with Mercury Records. Let's turn to the album. Let's start talking about these songs. The opening song is called Go. It is written by Phil Collin and Joe Elliott. Andy, Ben, in that order, I'm going to ask you to give me a number. I want you to imagine a slangometer. And in our slangometer, one is a song that sounds like it definitely shouldn't be on slang. Ten is a song that sounds like it really should be on slang. And then obviously, you've got your spectrum in between of our slangometer. Think of your number carefully. I'm going to ask you. Where did your slangometer go to for the song Go? Raj, what is your slangometer figure? A solid nine. It's a solid nine. He's gone in high, loud and proud. Right. Andy Gibbons? I've gone ten. Gone full ten? He's gone full ten. Ben? I go seven. He's gone seven. This always works on podcasts. Put your hands up if you like slang. I think one hand up, Andy's got two hands up. Yeah. Ben hates it. Oh, lazy Death Leopard, he thinks. Never said that to Phil in the record shop, did he? Right, okay. Right, okay. So, therefore, I'm going to come to Raj and Andy. I'll come to you first, Raj. I'm guessing if you like slang and you give this a solid nine, my prediction is that you also like the song Go. Is that correct? Yeah, so for me, you know, like... I- for all Leopard albums, I always want them to open with a bang, you know, and this was one that hadn't been leaked ahead of time or released. So when I heard it, it had pace, it was heavy, um, you know, the lyrics were darker coming off of um, X. I was very happy with some darker lyrics, you know, Joe wasn't on there spelling love out and, uh, and the, the dueling guitars in the solo. Um, so it was just like, okay, we finally let Vivian enter the band and show what he's got and, and kind of riff off of Phil. Um, so I was just very happy hearing it as an intro track that was very heavy. And then my first thought at the time was like, oh, please let them release this. Ben, you're not so keen on slang. What do you think of Go? Yeah, I like Go. The main highlight would be the, the, the dueling guitar solo for sure.
also, because I remember when I first heard it, and um, when that solo comes in, and it's like, oh, it, it's it's the, the bit they used to do in Rocket from the Don Valley show. It was like one lick, and it's like, whoa, this is great. And, you know, I, I'm sure Andy likes in, in certain movies he watches where you have a certain callback, you know, a film references. Oh, hey, they referenced that other film. So that for me is like Def Leppard doing a little a little reference back, just, just purely for us us diehard fanboys. Like, hey, remember this? Well, here it is. It's, yeah, it's a seven in terms of what I think it's slang ability, or what, what, sorry, what the phrase was. Um, I, I'd probably give it a solid seven in terms of how I'd, I'd rate, rate it as well. Firstly, Ben, I'm so happy with you bringing up the Rocket thing because I haven't really done many notes for these songs just because, you know, there's three of you. So I'm thinking I'm not going to say that much. I'm just going to just sit back and let you boys do most of the talking. But the one note I've got is that the dueling guitars, the handoff between the two of them, the thing that it really reminds me of is everyone's favourite version of Rocket, which is the 1992-1993 live version, as you hear on Dot and Valley, where it goes back and forth. And yeah, I agree. It's so similar. If only it was as long, that would make it even better. But it's it's really, really good. Go on, Andy, then. You're, you're a solid 10 on a slangometer. You like slang. Surely you like Go. Yeah, it's one of my favourite tracks. I think what I like about it is it's it's a surprise. It's almost like when you put slang on and you hear truth for the first time and it makes you do a bit of a double take because when you consider where they've just come from with X and what that was sounding like and then they sort of hit you with this one, you know, it's just totally at the opposite end of the spectrum. And I'd actually written down here that it does sound like something that could have come from slang, but I really like when they go darker in terms of, you know, the lyrics and the, and the guitar sounds. And that's why I like tracks like, you know, Truth and Desert Song and Cry and, uh, you know, Gift of Flesh and stuff like that, because, you know, it's a bit different to the norm. You know, and I, you could easily say that this is probably one of the heaviest tracks that they've done as well. I mean, I love the, the tribal drum loop thing. And Phil revealed on that um, Rockline interview that we mentioned that it was originally called Tribal probably because of the look that they had originally for it. But yeah, the heavy riffs, the dark lyrics. And I think despite it being quite a short song, it's probably got an epic feel to it. And as I mentioned earlier, this is probably one of the tracks that I think they could arguably have worked on a bit more to give it more of an epic feel. But as it stands, you know, it's pretty good, I think. You know, they did they did actually play it on the tour for a few shows. I think they played it um, in Japan and Australia. And I think given that they recorded this tour for the Mirabal album, I was a bit disappointed that it wasn't included on Mirabal. Yeah, I wonder if it mirrors, because remember on a slang tour, the first couple of shows, I think they tried Truth, which is the opening song off slang. And I think there's a lot of parallels between the way slang starts and the way this starts, and they're not a million miles away songs. And they tried that a couple of times, and they obviously liked it, because we know they front load their albums with, you know, with the songs that they like the most. And then they knock that on the head after um after one or two shows, I think. So yeah, I wonder if it's there's an interesting parallel there between the two. I've got to just say this will take us off songs from the Sparkle Lounge, but I feel that I feel it would be remiss not to address the tension between me and Andy here at the moment. So when he said the word cried and um <laughs> referring to the Def Leppard song off X, he leaned forward, looked me in the eye. And said it, and he had a little smirk on his face. Why did you say it in that way, Andy? Because I know that you hate that song, and I don't know why. <laughs> is, he, 
don't forget, remember, can you remember? I don't know how pissed you were, but at Wembley, you said to me, we're going to devote time on the next podcast where you can convince me that Cry is a good song. Do you remember saying that to me? I just think, I just think that it is something just like Go, just like Truth, Gift of Flash. I think it's something so left field that they don't normally do. You know, dark sounding lyrics, dark guitars. It's not something that you expect from them. And I really like it when they go in that direction. Cruise Control, there's another one. You know, it's dark, lyrically dark, but just sounds really cool to me. That's why I like those songs. It's got a great, when the heavy guitars come in and the verses, the verses has got that Billy's Got a Gun bass thing going on. So I really like that. The chorus, I'm not as keen on, but uh, I, I quite like Cry. And more, wash your mouth out. Do not be saying the words <laughs> Billy's got a gun and cry next to each other. Oh, my words. That make you cry. That's very good. People might have seen this already, but the I believe the chap who used to run the, was the Def Leppard website, Mark Senf. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, on his YouTube channel, there's a video of him. Well, he's videoing Phil Collins showing Rick Allen on the tour bus a demo of Goal. Um, and it's basically, it's, it's very much the same. The guitars on this demo sound like the intro guitars. And um, the little kind of pre-chorus bit doesn't grow, uh, go down chromatically. So like one note, semitone at a time. And there's a little riff after that before going into the chorus, which wasn't in the final version. But it's, uh, it's, it's cool to hear. And Phil also talks about how he was able to record on the laptop. And he's, he says, oh, I'm going to upgrade the laptop and you, you could record a whole album on it maybe hinting at what was to come. But uh, if, if people haven't seen that that video yet, I recommend checking it out. It's, it's really cool. I will put a link to that video in the show notes below, so you can just go down there now and click on it and have a little look at it. What's really good on that, Ben, and by the way, thank you for sending it to me, Ben, because I'd never, ever seen that before. And um, I've seen it for the first time today. There's a little, you get very, very little insight into how Def Leppard writes songs. You really, honestly, trust me, as a person who sort of scours everywhere and researches everything to find this stuff, you get very, very little information about the way in which they approach it and the way in which they do it. And it is good enough, Phil, because Phil says about how he's put the guitar parts together and then he just sort of sits on the guitar parts on the music and then from that, he'll work out what he thinks the song's about, like lyrically or, or where to go with it. So, I mean... That's not revolutionary stuff, but you hear so little from Def Leppard. It's just good to hear a little bit of insight into him, sort of like, you know, what they come with first, or in that instance, what Phil came up with. Thank you very much for that pearl of wisdom, Ben. Excellent. Right, we'll go on to Nine Lives, track number two. Are you tripping This was also the debut single of the album. It was released on the 27th of April, 2008. It features country star Tim McGraw on vocals 
And as mentioned earlier, it's got him also in the writing credit. Does he really do that much? I don't know. But anyway, Phil Collin, Rick Sav Savage, Joe Elliott, and Tim McGraw are given songwriting credits. After that, that's it. Everyone's on their own. Everyone's writing songs on their own. Raj, I am going to exploit your Americanness here. Okay. All right. I have never, ever, had never in my life heard of Tim McGraw and still don't really hear much of him that I have learned that Taylor Swift has a song um, with his name in the title. I'm assuming you've heard him, heard of him and how big is he in the States? Is he a massive country star or is he, you know, is he B league? Whereabouts is he? Oh, he's, he's massive. A-league. Yeah. Very massive. Yeah. Huge. I mean, he's up there with like Garth Brooks and anybody you may have heard Tim McGraw's up there. Yeah. All right. And are you a fan Raj? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, being in Texas, like raised in Texas. Um, I mean, I do like some country music. My wife's actually a huge fan of country music. And um, ironically, when we met, the Taylor Swift and all this stuff was happening right around this time. So, but uh, yeah, I mean, Tim McGraw's okay. And what's funny is the way he sings on Nine Lives is not how he typically comes in. He doesn't come in so country. He'll definitely have like your traditional country songs, but he'll also have some poppy, uh, more rocking sounding country songs as well. And for you, Raj, does Tim McGraw add any value to this song? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I do like that they included him on a version of the song, but I really wished if they were going to release Nine Lives as the opening single, then they would have released the just the purely death version of it. And again, it's because of how he sings that opening verse. And I honestly think that that opening verse is what killed the album. <laughs> it, uh, you know, coming off of Joby doing Lost Highway, and I, I recall even reading this in a few things was like, oh, here's Def Leppard, another 80s band going country, you know? And that opening verse is just so country that I think any. Def Leppard fan from the early days, um, basically any Def Leppard fan other than guys like us or gals like us uh, was going to be turned off and be like, oh, okay, they did something with a country album. I'm not sure if I'm going to give the rest of it a chance. So I just wish they had released their version of it because I think Joe's vocal on that intro verse is just a little grittier. It is still in that low register, um, but it's just not quite as twangy as what Tim McGraw does. Y'all may not have remembered this, but at the time they had also released Nine Lives to the the National Basketball Association. The playoffs were going on at the time. It was kind of an intro-outro track when they were going in and out of commercials. And it was just, even that was just a weird fit to have a song with Tim McGraw on it. Long answer short, I would have run with the Death Leopard version. I think as a single, it's fine. I'm Ben. So the story is, is that I think it's Rick Allen's brother was tim mcgraw's tour manager at the time he may still be i'm not too sure so there was some sort of connection and then at the hollywood bowl he came on stage with them they played a song or something like that and then him and phil had a chat and it manifested itself from there and they quite quickly knocked up the basis of the song why do you think they invited tim mcgraw to be on this song well I was quite surprised. I was I was watching through the um, 
the DVD extras of the album where they do like a track by track commentary. And from what I can gather, it's like, um, you know, they, they touch on that. They, they always come across artists on the road and say, oh man, we should work together and it never really pans out. But I think Joe was alluding to the, possibly the main lyric of it came from Tim. And I've heard, I've heard another story with Phil where they said, yeah, they were, they were backstage and, and it's like maybe coming up with something. Um, so maybe they just felt, so hey, we've, we've really got something here. And he, hey, he, can maybe, he can maybe bring something to the table. Um, other than that, I, 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 I don't know. I don't know else why, why they'd have them. Because certainly for us, I mean, I, I never knew knew of them beforehand. Um, but yeah, it's it's a it was a little bit of a strange one to see it come out, and I guess us over in the UK and maybe even Europe, we always feel a little bit a little bit like we're left out because um, Def Leppard seem to be so American based, and it's like oh they're 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 playing with this American artist who. A lot of us don't really know. It's oh man, you feel sometimes feel a little bit left out and jealous. Um, but it's an interesting song. Uh, I'm going to be controversial and say I think it's a poorer man's four-letter word. I, th- I think uh, four-letter word is is very similar in terms of being, you know, an Armageddon at photograph type of type of guitar riff thing. Um, but Phil Phil was talking about how yeah, it all came musically. Uh, backstage from from him and then he said that all the basic guitars him and him and Vivian did while backstage on the road so that that's one that could truly be said was part of the, the sparkle lounge I think it's a good comparison that you draw between nine lives and four letter word because again when you read interviews of the band talking about those songs the one word comes up for both of them which is ACDC and they talk about them both being ACDC type songs so Andy Raj touched on it and it's where we were going in terms of for him to an extent this single being released might have been what killed the album was it the right single to release as the debut single for this album in your opinion Andy? I actually think it was I mean Ben's just come up with his little controversial opinion my controversial opinion is that I thought at the time and I still think now that that song when it came out for me had the most hooks and most catchy uh, stuff on it that they, that I'd heard since Animal I really think that and I listened to it again today I, I still think that with the bridge and the chorus I think that's so catchy I really like that aspect of it the one mistake you could probably say from a, from an English point of view maybe is that it's got Tim McGraw on him means absolutely nothing in England and probably anywhere outside, or most places, I would guess, outside of America. And I think it's a pretty calculated decision and a long line of decisions from the from the management and whatever that they put him on. Because I think that was uh, it's purely aimed at the American market for do that. But uh, I also agree with what Tim said. I've written down here, the intro country earth is reminiscent of four-letter word. And it is. It's It kind of follows on following that theme. But I think it's, I actually think this is, better than four letter word it's more catchy than four letter word it's more hooky than four letter word and it's it's straight out to the the animal avenues on again it promises kind of stable of you know the leopard by numbers singles so i like it i prefer the joe version i prefer it when it gets a bit meatier through the verses when the country of kind of disappears i think the one negative for me about it apart from tim mcgraw being on it is that this is probably the worst sounding song on the album for me 
you know, the, the, we discussed earlier the snare disappearing. It disappears later on in the song for some some hand claps, and it just sounds compressed. So I like the song a lot. Very catchy, very hooky, a typical single. I thought it was a good choice. I still like it. It's like for y'all, Tim McGraw being on it is is a negative because y'all don't know him. And I think in the States, it was a negative because everybody did know him. And it just put yeah. Jeff squarely in this, oh, they're copying what Bon Jovi did. And it's a country album. And it, it felt like people wanted to give Sparkle Lounge a chance. And the single maybe stopped that momentum just because people thought it was Leopard doing country. And it, it immediately alienated any of the rock fans. Which unfortunately, if they had given the album a chance, there was a lot of stuff on the album for them. But uh, I, yeah. I find it really difficult to talk about X, yeah, and Sparkle Lounge without talking about all of them essentially at the same time because it's just a real relationship for me with those songs and and sort of my Death Leopard journey, uh, shall we call it. And one thing I would say is that when now the single came out ahead of X or at the same time, whenever it was, I I thought that was an amazing single. Is exactly what I wanted to see Def Leppard doing it. And I thought X is going to be amazing if it's like now. And then X was a disappointment for me. And the Sparkle Lines was the other way around. I was gutted when Nine Lives first came out. I like it. I like it now. But at the time I was like, oh, really? You know, I just, I'll just, I had no real interest in it, but as I said, I do like it a lot now. And then I had quite low opinions of what the album was going to be. And then when the album came out, and then Go, the song that we just talked about, kicked in. And it's like, it's it's 11 on my slangometer, which is just like one of my favourite Def Leppard albums. I was like, oh, this is amazing. And so it's, it's really interesting the way in which debut singles can or cannot represent um, an album for different people. And just talking about these couple of songs now, you boys won't have heard it, but we've had an episode on X. We've had an episode on, yeah, we even had an episode on Jurassic Symphonies and we've now a Sparkle Lounge. Now that we've got into this era of Death Leopard, when we're all talking about Pyromania, yeah, it's brilliant. When we're all talking about Hysteria, yeah, it's brilliant or whatever. But it's now on these albums that come in the 21st century where the people who've been on such as yourselves now are all saying completely different things and have completely different views on all of these songs. It's just dead, dead interesting. So let's talk about another song. Okay, it is Come On, Come On. This was also a single. and This was released on the 14th of July, 2008. by Rick Savage Ben I'll come to you first this is a very glam song isn't it how do you think this compares to other Def Leppard glam hits I actually think that uh, 
this is maybe the 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 strongest of of those glam glam type songs. Uh, I I think it's it's a great it's a great one of those simple rockers. The I mean the chorus is was perfect for you know the sing along sing along type of thing. Viv's comments on it were were essentially he thought it was the pivotal song of the record. He said it sounds like glam. It sounds like yeah, which is what they were coming from. He thinks it just it sums up where where they were at that that time. And I remember I I don't think I was as keen on it when when it when it was around when it was coming out. They did, um, you know, for, from when when I was growing up, I got used to not seeing the band on TV a lot. And it was during this era that we started to see more of them on, on TV, and then obviously with YouTube and everything. And the um, they they did the, uh, the the live show at Abbey Road, and um, so it's a series on Channel Four, I think it was. And this was one of the songs they chose to play. And I remember being absolutely gutted when when when, when they chose this one. Thing about all all the other ones they could have done. They I think they did a couple more. They did Rocket, I think. So I have a weird weird relationship with. It. I I do think it's it's a, it's a fine song. It doesn't really stand out guitar wise, but it's it's typical of Sav, I think. And I think for me this this could have been the leading single for me, um, but again it that wouldn't necessarily represent the rest of the album as well I don't think but I think it's quite a strong song. You raise an interesting point. Which song on here does represent the rest of the album? Because my view is that, albeit what Andy said earlier about the structures being the same. It's a really varied album, probably that comes about the fact that you've got so many different songwriters doing things on their own. But it does, re- and I think it's really varied. I think it's really, I think I've asked you a really difficult question there. Thank you, Neil. I gotta admit, I mean, I'm looking through the track list here, and it's funny, it's not till you actually ask that, that you know, you have made that good, good point there. It's like, what you know, I, I could give you what my favorite song is, I could give you what I think someone else would like, but something that would represent the album is that's, that's tricky. That's tricky. I think instinctively when you first said that, I wanted to say hallucinate and I don't know why, but I'm thinking either that or bad actress as being shorter kind of song. No nonsense. We've got guitars back in it. We've got vocal harmonies back in it. You know, that's, that's where I'm leading with that. The, the, the other kind of main tracks, which are probably better than that, like go, like maybe come on, come on. Uh, I don't. I I think they they're the odd ones of the album for me. Go with your instinct. I trust your instinct. I would trust your instinct to look after my children. So stick with hallucinates. <laughs> Raj, which song on here best represents this album? Yeah, I would say for me, Bad Actress is one of them, and not necessarily because it sounds like any of the other tracks. Um, I just think it kind of represents the, the driving pace of the album. The kind of the choruses are a lot um, more direct, you know, than they had been on past albums. It's got that three minute pop rock sound. Um, and it's got the, the guitar, you know, the crunchy guitars, the dueling guitars. Come on, come on. I think coming off a of yeah. Um, which they were inspired by when making this album. So come on, come on, seems to be like a joke. Okay, cool. And Andy, which song best represents songs from the Sparkle Lounge? I mean, when I think of the album, the first three tracks spring to mind straight away. But I think thinking about one song, Come Undone came into my mind straight away. I just think with the 
you know, the meaty riff on it, the, the catchy bridge, catchy chorus. So I'm going to go for that one. Come on, Don. Okay, one hallucinate, one bad actress, one come on, Don. I'm not going to answer it. It's way too hard to answer that. Right, it's okay. <laughs> so, Raj, staying on, come on, come on then. Do you like it when Def Leppard were the 1970s glam influencers so obviously on their sleeve? Yeah, I actually do like it. Um, I liked it. Yeah. I was a big fan of that album. I like them kind of going back to the to their original roots. Um, and I kind of like what it's done to the three albums since, you know, um, where they're, I guess from the pop side, they're more focused on maybe writing the three minute pop song and not necessarily trying to duplicate what they had done in the past. And you know, just let their instruments and their sound do the make it sound like Def Leppard more so than than a lot of the production, which they've done obviously. But I just think it kind of got, got them back from chasing themselves, you know, the, their past selves. Um, so come on, come on is kind of like a hat tip to that sound, and I do, I do like when they do it because obviously they enjoy it, and I do like Sav's writing. It's it's rare that there's a Sav song that I don't enjoy. Yeah, this is one of the best songs on the album, I think. Um, definitely one of the better ones of the, the glam sort of influence tracks, definitely. I mean, when you look back at those, you've got uh, Back in Your Face, which is just a probably a, a rock and roll Gary Glitter type rip off and Man Enough off the Def Leppard album. That's probably another one by Exodus. But I think this one, Come On, Come On, sort of captures, uh, you know, the 70s sort of glam vibe with the, with the, uh, with the drum loop but also mixes in more Def Leppard with the guitar sound and the harmonies and the vocals. And I think that that drum loop just comes straight out to the, uh, I mean, Raj might not know these, but Chin and Chapman, who were big songwriters back in the 70s, they were writing stuff for like Susie Quattro and Mud and Sweet. And if you listen to any of those tracks, they've all, or a lot of them have got a very, very similar drum loop to this. And, and I think that's what, that's what I like about it. It sort of drives it along. And interestingly, uh, you know, Sav described it as being a, a song that they stopped writing after Let, Let's Get Rocked and Make Love Like a Man. And I think that's probably true when you look at the albums in between. There's nothing quite like this that's been done since Adrenalize. And I think it can sit along those, alongside those singles and even sit in the current set list if they ever decided to, to represent the album again. You know, it's just lyrical nonsense, catchy, easily. It's something easy to sing along to. And just as a, a little fact, I'm pretty sure that this was the only song that survived past the Sparkle Lounge tour because they played it on the Mirable tour. And I don't think they played anything else oh, off the nice. album on any tour since. So they did dig this one out. And they, uh, for anybody that did see them live, I love the sort of Monty Python-esque graphics that they used on the big screen for this song, which which also featured Steve as an angel. That was a nice little touch. But uh, yeah, one of, the, one of the best songs on the album for me, this one. I fully agree as well. Um, and it was really, really good on the Spark Online's tour live. I thought it worked really, really well. So that's one Rick Savage song. Let's move on to track four and another Rick Savage song. Okay, so I've got another ometer for you. Okay, so it's not a slangometer this time, it's a queenometer, right? Okay, so what I want you to do is tell me where about does the song Love fall on the queenometer? One is a song that does not sound like Queen. Ten is a song that does very much sound like Queen. And everything in between. 
I'm going to come to Andy first because I know he's got views on this. So, Andy, on your Queenometer, where does love come? It's it's Spinal Tap. It's going 11. Right. It's one higher. Raj, where would you put love on your Queenometer? I'd say about a six. I can see that as well. I can see the arguments for both the 11 and the six, weirdly. <laughs> and Ben, where are you putting love on your Queenometer? At the time, it would have been 10, but since Kings of the World came out, it's now a nine. It leads me to my question that I was going to ask Andy, but I'm still going to ask him anyway, right? What sounds more like Queen, Love or Kings of the World? Love. That, Tell us why. I think Love. Just put on Jealousy from the jazz album, and you'll, like, you'll hear it. You know, it's interesting that Savage said that he was working on this song since 92 and put it on the back burner when, once um, Freddie Mercury died because they didn't want to look to be cashing in on... Um, on, on his death and then doing the Queen style song. But then when you listen to Jealousy, listen to the piano intro, it's 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 very similar to the acoustic intro for this. Listen to how the lyrics are phrased, how it starts. And I get that their influences are all over the songs throughout the career. But a lot of them are very subtle. And for me, I get I got into Def Leppard for Def Leppard for how they sound. I didn't get into Def Leppard to hear them sounding like Queen or trying to do Queen. And it, it just puts me off. And that's why I really don't like this song. And also when you think this spot on the album, you've just had three pretty pretty good tracks go, Nine Lives, Come On, Come On. The fourth track, the fourth spot on an album is normally a biggie. You know, you love Bites Tonight. Well, I know that's five on a stereo, but you know what I mean? It's normally the first ballad. It's normally a big track. And I think this is the first misstep for this album where the uh, where they just do an out. Right, Queen tribute, which was unnecessary for me. Coming over to you, Ben, now. One, does the fact that it sounds like Queen quite a bit bother you? And two, what do you think of the song in general? It's hard to say, really, because I... Yeah, I think it does bother me. Uh, but I think in in context to where we are now, looking back, that we've had even more Queen-type songs come out since. If this was a, one, a one-off where... It, Maybe Sav was thinking, oh, you know, I, I just want to get this off my creative chest. I want to write a Queen type song. Okay, I've done that. Now I can go back to writing, you know, Stage Fright Part Two or another Hit and Run or When Love and Eight Collide. You know, three of my absolute favorites from Def Leppard that, you know, he has a co-write on. But because we had, you know, Kings of the World come afterwards, and also that Def Leppard, I've also went into the the. The Beatles-esque type writing as well. I think I think it does bother me because, like Andy, I I want Def Leppard to be Def Leppard, but I totally respect them wanting to to try and write stuff like this. I just think it it comes at the, uh, the sacrifice of making the album a bit more cohesive and a bit more flowing. I think it it, it does detract more than it adds. Um, it's funny, Joe at the time on the the commentary said it's the most wacky thing we've ever recorded. And so you just wait a few years, Joe, you might be doing another one. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's interesting to listen to. It was interesting to try and, to try and figure out to play because um, interesting kind of chord progressions. And the opening arpeggiated stuff is very similar to what Sav came up with, the, with the opening of uh, Take What You Want, a little descending chromatic bass line going down with the arpeggiated guitar. That's an example where he can use that and keep it in a killer rock song. Um, but yeah, this so maybe put out there, maybe we wouldn't we wouldn't have had take what you want without Sav writing this. So maybe we have to give him a bit of a bit of credit for that. Love, love, love. 
Before we move on to Raj, one thing I've had in my mind since you said it is I think it's only a matter of time before there's a Facebook group called Sav's Creative Chest with lots of women in it who love Sav. I think you might have just started an idea there. And if that that group isn't up, set up by the time, a week after this episode, I'm going to be very, very disappointed. So get on it, girls. Right, Raj. So, so far, quite negative views on love. I mean strongly disagree but I'm, I'm you know as i said i've left my boxing gloves at home so are you gonna give us a third hmm, not that great or have you got something do you like this song a little bit more than ben and andy yeah i definitely like it a little more than ben and andy um like i said i like sap tunes i like the epicness of them and the only reason i gave this a six on the queen scale obviously everything from sap does have a queen tinge but i actually musically at least hear a little bit of Stairway to Heaven, you know, and even one Metallica. Just kind of the slower intro um, and then to the more heavier, you know, conclusion. And and I guess the one from Metallica is maybe the march kind of in the middle of the song. Um, So that's why I didn't fully give it the the full queen nod like I would have Kings of the World. Um, but yeah, I do like when Sav gets a chance to put a song on the album like this that's a little more epic. Um, and I like the experimentation it allows the band to do. I do agree it does take away from some of the cohesiveness of the album. And, and at this four spot, maybe a more kind of traditional ballad would have fared a little better, a more traditional Death Leopard ballad. But I'm happy that it's on the album. And I, and I don't know if you guys have listened to the... The, the version of this song they did with Taylor Swift on the Crossroads episode, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a track on the DVD. It wasn't air on the, the actual episode. But that one actually gives you kind of a kind of a future glimpse at what might be coming with Drastic Symphonies because they bring in the, the violin, several, you know, cello players and things like that. So and it, it sounds really good. That version is really nice. I think even with Taylor doing the intro vocal and Joe singing a little grittier. Um, it, it gives something a little extra to that song. But uh, yeah, I do enjoy the song and, and I'm, I'm good with it. You know, yeah. yeah, just a little observation really, is that I equate this to, to another band I like I Maiden as well. And it seems that Def Leppard have done it as well, as that as time's gone on, now whether it's down to the fact that A, they've evolved as writers or B, they're now at such a position in the career where they can do basically what they fancy. But you find now that they're introducing more tracks that sound like their sort of uh, heroes, if you like. You know, you've got the Queen stuff on this and, you know, with Love and Kings of the World later. You also get the stuff later on on uh, Diamond Star Halos that's very Mott the Hoople, David Bowie kind of stuff. 
Iron Maiden have done the same, very sort of prog rock. And it's kind of weird how they've sort of gone away from being what they were and what made them to slowly morph into do more stuff that sounds like the stuff that they like when they were kids. I found that strange. I found that weird because it, we are a totally different audience, if you like, you know, that they're pushing that on, if that makes sense. And I think it goes beyond the music as well, because I'm holding up now for the boys. You can all do a, a Google image search or, you know, the yeah. capitalist search engine of your choice. Right. Okay. And we've got the songs, songs from the Sparkle Lounge. I mean, the cover of songs from the Sparkle Lounge is an obvious nod to the cover of Sgt. Pepper by the Beatles. And I think it goes almost a little, I think there's more of a Queen thing in this as well, because you've obviously got the Night of the Opera album, which is Queen, which has all got the sort of the theatrical theme. And, and the whole thing about that album is that all of the songs are really, really different. It's like, you know, a Night of the Opera where it's like a variety show all, almost. I mean, if you look at the back of the album, you've got a lady sweeping up in the theatre and everything. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying Def Leppard have consciously done this, but I do think, at least subconsciously, yeah, there's a Beatles thing. But when you look at the sort of the disparate nature of the songs on this album, you look at what Ben called like the lack of cohesion, and I think he's right in that. Though one person's lack of cohesion is another person's. Oh, it's varied. I've had this conversation lots of time, but lots of different Def Leppard albums with different people. But I think there's a definite nod to that sort of that queenness in terms of the theatricality of the theme and of this album and just the complete like randomness of, of the songs, um, to be frank. But I may be pushing that too far. You let me know. Right. Okay. So we're going to come to the last song on side one. Don't worry, everyone. We'll go through side two much quicker. We will all get to bed tonight. Though you still got the whole day ahead of you, Raj. And it's a lovely day. We've, we've seen the future for you. Six yeah. o'clock is amazing. Right. It's okay. Wait till 538. It's the, the best minute of the day. Right. Okay. So we come to the song tomorrow. Holland lyrically it's about his dad about the death of his father but it's actually quite a positive song in terms of it's talking about you know seizing the day you can't wait until tomorrow you know if you're going to do something do it today and make the most of each day so even though it could be quite a morose song lyrically it's upbeat musically it's upbeat as well Andy what do you think of tomorrow you just said what I've written down <laughs> that's weird uh, yeah it's one of my favorites in the album it's got a typical sort of lep uh, single sort of structure to it and I think when you think about what the subject matter is and then le- and then read the lyrics and listen to them properly it is very poignant 
but the irony of that, it's, it is really uplifting and it's really catchy, which sort of goes against the subject matter. But I think it's uh, it's probably one of the strongest songs on the album for me as well. Yeah, I like this one a lot. You a fan of it, Raj? Surprisingly, I'm not. And I don't dislike it, but for me, it's... Um, we've gotten this type of a song from Phil, basically. There's usually one or two on every album, you know? They start off with a lot of guitar, and then they kind of go into the verse that's just going along, you know? And... Um, don't ever get the urge to listen to these particular songs again, except when I'm listening to the album. And then they are so hooky that you end up remembering them. But yeah, they're just okay lap tunes for me. These are the Phil songs that I can kind of take or leave them, you know, which is because I think the band themselves really like these style of songs, which is why we see them all the time. For them, they hearken back, like like Andy said, to what they feel is quintessential flapper. Um, but for some reason, they don't do that for me. Ben, has Phil just given us filler, or has he given us a really good song that you actually quite like? It's such a natural nose, Neil. I just have to just say that there. <laughs> this, is, this is my favourite song on the album. It always has been, as soon as I first heard it. Um, like Raj is saying, it is, it's, just a, it's a typical Phil song. And um, I don't know what it is, because... I maybe it is actually right that is my favorite song because I never process lyrics. I never understand them. So the fact that it is about his dad dying, I think really suits what I can process with lyrics because I can never take notice of them. So the fact that, you know, that was always a thing with me. It's like, it's such a great up, upbeat sounding song. How can it be about this? But that's just the power power of the songwriting, I guess. Um, I love the guitars in it. Uh, I love the bridge. And it's funny because um, Andy mentioned about the, the bridge and hooks and nine lives and even come undone. It's actually made me think now there actually, there's a lot of great bridges in, on this album. Um, tomorrow, I think, takes my top spot for that. I just don't know what else to say. I, I, the only thing I don't like, actually, would be Joel doing his owl impression on the, on the intros, the hoo-hoo type thing. Uh, it might be an inside joke. Maybe Sav got him to do that. You know, Chef a Wednesday fan, the owls, Joel being oh, a blade. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's something in there. I don't know. Reading too much into it. But uh, yeah, lo- love the song. To me, and this sounds like I'm damning it with faint praise, and I'm really, really not, because I'm a big, big fan of this song. And it's one of my favourite songs on the album as well. It's in that area of the solid Def Leppard rock song, in terms of, like, you know, you've got this. I think of other songs like All Time High. Maybe, a, I don't know, like a Tear It Down, a Ring of Fire. I don't know. I'm not saying they all sound the same, but there's a sort of solid type of Death Leopard rock song that always, you know, it, it'll only ever bottom out at like a 7 out of 10, and you know, and, and could be higher. Um, I think this is higher than a 7 out of 10. Right, we've got to the end of side one, okay? So what we're going to do, I thought oh, this could be difficult. This We are going to agree on what song from side one we are going to put on the ultimate Def Leppard pod, Def Leppard playlist, which to date is still just an imaginary thing that doesn't exist, but will exist one day, definitely. Normally what I ask people to do when you think about this is have your choice, but maybe have a backup choice as well, so, you know, so we can we can operate in an, in an area of compromise and love. Raj, you're going to come to you first, and to be honest, I normally, if someone's over the first time, I normally just give them what they want, um, unless you come up with a really horrendous choice. I don't think there's a, a standout bad one that you can make here. So, 
we'll play the game of pretending that we're going to agree this, but Raj, you'll essentially get what you want. Okay, so Raj, what song would you pick from side one to go on the Def Leppard Ultimate oh. Def Leppard playlist? <laughs> yeah, this is actually a tough one. Um, side two was much easier for me. Because um, I do like all the tracks. Go probably is my favorite, It's but it's out there, right? It's, a, it's an out there choice. Um, so I think but I think what I'll do is I'll do go first and come on, come on second. Okay. Lovely jubbly. Gonna go to I'll go to Andy next. Exactly the same as Raj. Go and come on, come on. Go by far. It's okay. And then Ben. I was gonna have it the opposite way around. Because the way the way I was thinking about this was I'm like come on, come on for, for the song on the playlist to represent their their glam type of thing. As long as no other glam type songs from the band get on that playlist, it's like right, come on, come on's the one, right? We've we've got we've got the glam one. That's it. We don't have to worry about the other albums. Um, I put go second. Go, I think is the strongest of that side one. Even though tomorrow's my favorite, I'd still say go is probably stronger. But I think we have better epics that we could put on the playlist. I'm just thinking about the the variety we're going to be giving the listeners with the playlist. So. I'd say come on, come on first, go second. Okay, so we, we have got we've got we've got two goes, one come on, come on, and a go as a contingency. I would probably go come on, come on, and then go myself. And I mean, at the end of the day, there's something that anyone who listens to all of the Death Leopards and listens to all of these choices, there's definitely a thing going on. I don't know if anyone's noticed it, but men of a certain age, such as us, and in that era tend to just go for the heavier stuff it's just it's just a fact so i think when this finally comes finally comes out you know there's going to be a lot of desert on gods of war papers on go and all of that sort of stuff going on i think we will go with go that was roger's uh choice before we move on to side two which we will definitely do quickly don't worry i just want to quickly say this side one of songs from the sparkle lounge in particular is what reinvigorated my starting to wane love for Def leopard back in 2008 because i think go is a great song i thought nine lives was okay i absolutely love come on come on i really like love and i really like tomorrow and after a covers album and after x which i didn't particularly like the first half of this album and the first song that we're going to come on to on side two i was like oh my god thank god they're doing stuff that i like again and more consistently and i do like the fact that there was so much diversity and everything that's it that's all i'm going to say about my views on songs for the sparkle lounge but i've been waiting three years to say that so thank you for indulging me right then we will go on to side two and the first song is cruise control Vivian Campbell. He doesn't write that many, okay, but he's got three on this album, and this is the first one. Ben, I'm going to come to you first. This song's based around a bass riff. It's a cool riff, isn't it? Yeah, no, that really hooks you in, because um, we're not used to we're not used to hearing a lot of bass. Certainly bass intros, apart from maybe like Gods of War. 
Um, so when, when something like that comes in, it, it maybe you know pricks your ears up. You, you start listening to it. I think it's a cool song. It it's it's nice that it stands out on its own a little bit. In fact, Viv Viv's comments on it said it it basically started out from that. He called it a scary bass riff, and um, he said he was thinking about his his guitar tech Wolfie, who's apparently a, a scary looking man. He he just has a beard. I think that's that's all. Um, so he was trying to come up with scary chords to go over the top, and that's that's what we get those dissonant sounding chords you you might call them. Um, I think it's a cool song. I I think for me those those type of chords they don't quite don't quite appeal to my melodic sensitive ears, and um, like when it gets to the solo, I found a viv on this as well. He uses a lot of like like the wah wah pedal. Uh, it's just not a particularly favorite sound for mine so when i hear that throughout the song it doesn't quite it doesn't quite fit with me i think it's an okay song it's just not one i'd maybe go back to play a lot as a song raj does it fit with you it does fit with me <laughs> yeah and i i i do i, I enjoy that um that vivian got a few tracks on this side of the album and and it kind of makes me wish that he would write more with the band. You know, on the last two albums, he's kind of, especially on the last one, he kind of sat one out for the most part, other than a few solos. I mean, I think it was similar on on the self-titled album as well. But uh, yeah, I like the darkness of the track, and I, and I do like how the chorus then switches to something a little bit lighter and is still very recognizable Def Leppard. I like the way Joe sings on this on this. Um, song as well. the solo i know ben you probably with you being a, a guitar guy i'm sure yeah you hear that wawa and stuff like that a little more than than we do i think i was just happy to to get a vivian solo you know and kind of have it featured so yeah i was i was very happy with cruise control similar to probably what you went through neil i think our reactions to the album and how the the tracks were playing out was probably very similar back in 2008 andy raj mentioned then as well about the that intro riff and the verse is very different to the chorus, and that's always something that's stood out for me. And, and you used the perfect word then, Raj, if I was being you know, much lighter. Does that work for you, Andy, having sort of a chorus that tonally sounds quite different to what's come before? Yeah, I think this is it's, it's quite unique, as Ben mentioned as well, the, the bass intro as well. It's not something we do too often. So you've got the bass intro, and I love the, the verse vocals, are the kind of double-tracked, you know, you've got Joe singing in a, a lower register, then there's a higher register, the one just behind it, which which makes it stand out, I think. But but also, you know, I mentioned earlier about liking dark songs. I mean, this is a song about a suicide bomber, which it's unbelievable, really, when you think about the kind of stuff that Def Leppard would normally write. You know, listen to the lyrics and, and you can you can tell that straight away. But I, I think I think this is 
Viv's strongest song that he's contributed to Def Leppard. I think it's really good. I think it's uh, another one that could have been made even better by being expanded a bit more because it's got that epic feel about it. Um, and it's a really solid track. And I know I'm not a guitarist, but I really do like Viv's solos. It just sounds typically Viv for the solo and also the outro solo as well. So, yeah, this is this is one of my favourites. And it's just so different to anything else that they've ever done. I can't think of anything that sounds like this, which just goes back to this album. Even though it's all very guitar orientated, every single song has got something different to it, I think. There's, there's not two that you could say are very alike. Just to clarify, Andy, if Work It Out and Cruise Control were to meet in the pub car park after school for a fight, you're telling me that Cruise Control wins? Yeah, he's got to, yeah. It's a suicide bomber, so it's bound to win. Okay, fair play. <laughs> right, going on to the next song then. We've got Hallucinate, which is another Bill Collins song. Your is Is there much to say about Hallucinate? I'm not too sure that there is, but I'm going to open the floor up to you and anyone else who wants to talk about it. No, and maybe that's a good thing, that there isn't much to say. It's just a straight-ahead type of rock song. I'd loved hearing the opening come in. I think it's a great riff. I think, like Andy's mentioned before, if a song like this maybe had a bit more work to it, it could have, could have been a bit better. It, it could have easily have been something on par with like a dangerous in recent years if it maybe had a bit of a stronger stronger chorus because i think intro and, and verses is great um the only thing phil said about it when on the on the commentary track by track is that uh it started three and a half years ago before the album was released the night before his daughter was born that's when he started started the the basic idea of of hallucinate and Joe was saying it's pretty much, you know, you know it's a Def Leppard song before he even sings. Um, it's just got that that trademark sound and guitar riffage. Yeah, I think Ben Joe may have even said possible single on the on the DVD extras, right? Yeah. So you can tell that these Phil songs are the ones that Leopard kind of sees as more having more commercial success or more commercial potential. But yeah, for me, this one f- falls in similar to to how I felt with tomorrow. I think good good songs. I enjoy listening to them, but they they just don't move the needle for me. Nandy, I'm gonna put a statement to you, and you can agree or disagree. And Ben alluded to it via leaving something out that he said on where he stopped when he was talking. And I would say my statement is really good verse, song let down by the chorus. Agree or disagree? 100% agree. I was lucky enough to hear them play this live. I think they only played it live once at a show, at a concert, and then they maybe played it in America one of Jimmy Kimmel shows or something like that. And they played this at the Sparkle Lounge launch party in London, which was actually a smaller show than the Leadmill gig that they recently did. But they played Nine Lives, Come On, Come On, and they played Hallucinate. And it worked. I thought it worked well with the verse and the intro but when it got to the chorus it just kind of 
fell flat. It just it just fell off a cliff, I think. And I think that's probably a reason why they didn't carry on playing it live after after that, because they must have thought at that point that it was a decent enough song to try playing live. But I didn't think that it worked, to be honest. Um, and yeah, it's a typical. It reminds me a little bit of maybe maybe a little bit of Man Ray stuff with that that uh, opening intro riff. And also, if you listen to uh, Forever Young on the 2015 album, I think yeah. it just sounds just like Hallucinate, the intro riff to Hallucinate. Um, yeah, it's got all the ingredients of being a single, but and when I mentioned earlier that maybe the deadline to get it out ready for the summer of uh, 2008, maybe the fact that they were rushing to... Um, fulfill a record contract maybe tracks like this just didn't have that maybe that little bit more work on them that sorry if you might have maybe just didn't have that work on them that would take them to the next level yeah yeah it's, it's pretty average one of the weaker ones for me i think that chorus sounds to me like a placeholder chorus where you know you're writing a song and you put that in and you go, we'll come back to that later and then we'll work on the chorus but then they just never that's what it sounds like to me but I do think it's a shame because I think the verse is really really strong but it's, it is let down by that chorus a bit so we'll move on from Hallucinate to Only the Good Die Young so it's another Vivian Campbell song this one is certainly to an extent about Steve Clark Vivian says it is by my reckoning I think that's the third Def Leppard song about Steve Clark because you got White Lightning, Blood Runs Cold, and then this one. I think that's the three. Yeah, you can let me know um, if I'm wrong. And Raj, what do you think about only only the good die young? I like it. Um, yeah, clearly I'm enjoying the the Vivian writing. Um, you know, I'm working it out as well. Um, I think this one's another a little bit of a hat tip to yeah, just from the song title itself. And what I liked about this song, there's a lot going on in it. It's similar to uh, Cruise Control. Um, there's a lot of different parts, but they they blend together well. I think a little better than what maybe they were trying to do with with Now on X. You know, even though I like Now, it's a little more disjointed than what we get with Cruise Control and Only the Good Die Young. And I, I like Leopard channeling their influence. This is the one that very clearly has some of the kind of Beatles music box stuff that you might see on some of the down and outs albums you know yeah i like this kind of an experimental song and honestly i would have been okay with this getting released as a single it's something that i think may have played well for the band in 2008 and might have fit in you know with the music scene it's 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 a rock song it's shows their influences but it's pushing the envelope enough to to not just be the same old same old you know kind of like maybe what they did with Let's Go, right? Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed this song. I saw you on a screen An icon, a legend, a king I heard it in a song It's still going strong So Ben, coming to you then. This is this is the song with a difficult guitar solo. So talk to us about this song through the prism of guitars and you, our resident guitar hero. <laughs> well, I I really like the song. I think it's my it's my favorite Viv contribution on the album for sure. 
it's funny because on the on the con commentary he talks about the demo being very much like a Tom Petty type sound, yeah. and he had a cool guitar riff, and then he said it got leprified. And I think it's a great example of, of what could have been, or maybe what still could be, from Def Leppard taking a, a Vivian song and and leprifying it or leopardizing it, as I would say, because I, I really like songs like "To Be Alive" and this, and "Work It Out," which you can tell aren't aren't the typical Def Leppard formula, but they 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 certainly have signature Def Leppard sounds with with guitar parts and harmonies. Yeah, I really, I really enjoy this song. I, I do love the solo. I think it flows really nicely. And I do find it melodic. I feel it's maybe just a little bit let down by the production. I think this this is one of those songs where it could have easily been lifted another another few points if it had if it had better production. But there's an interesting thing Vivian says on the commentary as well for the album that he said there's still some solo licks or last minute licks he needs to send to Ronan, and he said, "Oh, maybe if I leave it to the last minute, they'll be too late to change." And it's an interesting way to think about how they're making the album. And it maybe sums up the album pretty well that that's that's how it's getting made. You know, they're doing promo for it, they're doing a commentary track by track thing, and he's still needing to send send some files over to Ronan to add to the album. And it just makes you think, yeah, it's a little bit a little bit disjointed. Even even with that, I do really like the song. It's like you only had six years of it. <laughs> exactly. The idea that they're rushing to get things in for a deadline and the last album was six years earlier. It's quite it's quite funny, right? Okay, actually, while we're here, then Ben. Um, so are you telling me just to clarify that it's after school and what is it? Only the good die young and cruise control go to the pub car park for a fight. You're telling me that only the good die young wins. Uh, yeah. Well, cruise control, cruise control's winning till till we get to the the solo part. That's when only good die young brings out that little right hook. You know, maybe maybe just in the kidneys. And then cruise controls can't fight anymore. And then, and this, this is well, we know, well, you know what Andy's favorite Vivian Campbell song is. So this is for both Ben and Raj. All of the other Vivian Campbell songs are around. You know, they're in a circle. They're all like, oh, shouting and everything, watching the fight. But one runs in, and it's going to beat all of them. It's going to be the best Vivian Campbell song that exists in the Def Leppard catalog. Out of interest, Ben, what's your favorite Vivian Campbell song? Raj, what's your favorite Vivian Campbell song? It might, might might be odd, but mine is to be alive. I do really like that. That's a great song. Raj, what's your favorite Vivian Campbell Death Leopard song? Yeah, you know, the, off the top of my head, before kind of prepping for this podcast, I would have said work it out. Um, but now it is only the good die young. It's just there's just so much going on in that song that I like. I want to ask you a question first, and then you can take it where you want. It's got a Mellotron in it. For anyone who doesn't know what a Mellotron is, sounds like a squeaky wheel, and it immediately reminds you of the Beatles. Are you a yay or a nay for the Mellotron? Not normally, no, but I think it works within this one. I mean, I'd actually written down here, I'm, I'm not a fan of the of, of Beatles, really, but that little Beatles riff, and I didn't know what it was called, so thank you for that. I, th- I think that fits. And also later in the song, I'm sure they mention a diamond in the sky as well, so there's another little Beatles reference. Plus, as well, you've got the album cover, which is a bit Sergeant Pepper. So this 
this song kind of ties in with the album theme, I think. Uh, but no, it's a strong song. I like it. And it's it's interesting that you mentioned that it's another one written about Steve, but this one's totally different because it's written from the point of view of Viv. And when you consider that he's been living in the shadow of Steve and always will live in the shadow of Steve with Death Leopard, that makes it a little bit different. And there's just one lyric that jumped out at me, and I've just scribbled it down here, and it, it's the one lyric after the first verse where he says, they'll always be here. And that's so true because he'll never get away from from what Steve Clark brought to the band. He never will. So it's a really good song. Yeah, really good one. Oh, but one thing okay. I don't like is the fade-out. Can't stand fade-outs on songs. Especially if they're not going to be played on the radio, because that's why fade-outs existed in the first place, wasn't it? So Exactly. Right, we've got three songs left. I'm going to be a little bit cruel now, because what I'm going to say is you're going to pick a song each, and then you can just... Each tell us what you think of the song that you've picked. However, if anyone's got anything burning that they want to say about one of the songs that they might not be in on, then of course you can say it. So we've got Bad Actress, we've got Come Undone, we've got Gotta Let It Go. Who would like to do Bad Actress? Okay, yeah. Ben's put his hand up. So ben, <laughs> ben put his hand up. Survival of the Fittest here. You know, Only because I, I really don't like the other two. So, and I feel I know he's already said you like Come Undone, Andy. So. <laughs> Oh, oh no. Okay. Yeah, no, it's fine. I'll take gotta let it go. So we got Ben is our bad actress. Andy's come undone. And Raj is gotta let it go. Is that right? So have I literally forgotten the order in the space of ten seconds? You got it. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. I respond well to praise. Excellent. Right, okay. So bad actress, Ben, written by Joe Elliott. Oh, it's a corker of a song, isn't it? <laughs> Joe just seems to have a knack of writing these songs. I think, uh, you know, all throughout, even going back to something like She's Too Tough, you know, just a simple, straightforward rock song, incredible. Um, I think it's a great, great highlight of the album. And uh, I was lucky enough to see it live. And it was great that they were playing it live, live on the tour. Um, I just remember it sounding killer and being very impressed that they, they were playing, playing the track. Um, it, he talked about... He, he had kind of basic of an idea for ages, then he suddenly woke up and he's like, oh, I, I know where to finish it off. And uh, he brought it to the band and they were quite impressed because it's a, apparently a tricky, it's a tricky guitar riff for a singer to come up with. That's what, that's what they were saying at the time. Um, but this is one of the very few times as well that Vivian and Phil did the live back and forth solo together, which they, they don't normally do. In fact, on go, apparently, just going to go back for a little bit, they did the back and forth solo, but what they did is they had eight bars each. They weren't allowed to listen to what the other one played to make it fresh. So this one was a little bit different. They're both in the same room. They can kind of have a natural push and pull with each other, as uh, as Viv alludes to. Um, but yeah, killer, killer track, uh, great chorus. And yeah, on par with something like a Demolition Man, maybe even better than that, actually. Um, yeah, I really like it. 
this is another song on the Sparkle Lounge with those ones that I mentioned earlier. That was part of my Def Leppard enthusiasm reinvigoration. Obviously, I never left Def Leppard. I always liked them, but in terms of I'd sort of given up on them doing anything particularly great in the future. And this was the start of them doing really good and it got better and better and better. It's been, it's been great ever since this album, in my opinion. And this was a big song for me personally. The one thing I wanted to point out, you know... Um... When One Direction released Midnight Memories like several years later, everyone kind of instantly made a connection for the chorus to that song to to Force the Trigger on me, which it does sound like. But it does sound like their writer, Julian Bonetta, definitely must have had a copy of uh, Sparkle in his hand because so much of Bad Actress sounds just like that song, Midnight Memories, especially in the intro and the verses and then leading to a sugar uh, chorus. So it's just... Actress is the one song I thought maybe should have been a single that wasn't, uh, maybe even the leadoff single because it's a perfect rock pop blend. I think the attitude of this song, it just reminds me of something from the early years. It's not something they don't often do songs like this that are so quick. So that's what that's what it puts me in mind of. And also, I made a little bit of a mistake here. They they did actually play four songs at the launch party and Bad Actress was one of them. And it went down really well. And it's quite telling that when, as Ben mentioned, when they played it on the UK tour, they played it as an encore, which which probably tells you a lot about what they thought of the song, that they would throw it in at the very end of the show when everybody's expecting a big single. So, yeah, good song. It's on Mirrorball as well, isn't it? Bad Actress. Sorry, that version of Bad Actress is from that launch party show. Ah, cool. And I don't want to be accused of blasphemy or anything here. And I'm not saying it's as good, I'm not. But the bedfellow for it, to me, or something that comes to mind, is in spirit. I think it is like Wasters. And you just said there, Andy, about like, you know, the song that you'll throw at the end of an encore. What's the song that they often do, the deeper cut? You know, it's something like Wasted. So the fact that they don't bad actress says to me that, no, there is there is some sort of link in the spirit of those songs in terms of that sort of fairly quick punky ethos to it. But if you disagree, just then, you know, let me know. Right, okay. So Andy will stay with you. Joe Elliott again. Come on done. another little gem I think that Joe's come up with and I've written very few notes about this because it's such a simple song that I think it's one of my favourites off the album I love the riff that opens it and sort of drives through all the verses the bridge is probably the catchiest thing on the entire album I think you know both you know before both uh, choruses obviously tweaking it a little bit that was really good and I think this I mean we've said it for quite a few songs but I think this is a track that also could have been a single I think it's a really strong one for me. And lyrically as well, I quite like this song in terms of it's quite, you know, it's quite a pleasant message behind it. I think the whole thing is about like, when I come undone, you put me together again. It's all, it's all very pleasant, but it's less romantic than, 
you know, these songs tend to be where it might not just be like a romantic sort of relationship. It might be something a bit more um, family and whatever. So, yeah, it's all, all very nice as well. And then it ties in with like tomorrow being about Phil Collins' dad and that. So I do wonder if there's a bit of a sort of a link with that sort of stuff going on. But yeah, I agree. And I pick Come Undone as one of my 45 Daft Leopard deep cuts. To be honest, I think pretty much half of Sparkle Lounge was um, in, in those 45 songs. So yeah, Come Undone, I agree, is a really, really good song. And then that leaves us last but not least, Raj, to tell us what he thinks about Gotta Let It Go. Another Vivian Campbell song, number three of three. Reach for the sky, losing your crown. Tell it to no one, tell it to the sun, tell it to the friends who come and go, tell it to yourself. this is the my least favorite Viv song on the album um and maybe one of the weaker closers Leopard has had you know even on X I thought they closed pretty strong um Euphoria slang um but it, it's not a but I like it again it, but for me it's definitely kind of like an album track reminds me a bit of Brian Adams of, you know maybe late 80s Brian Adams in the with the opening guitar riff um the the yeah, one part, yeah. I do like Joe's falsetto in it, um, which we don't necessarily get a lot of that false in there, and uh, and and then I wrote crunchy chorus, so I, I enjoy. I think the crunchier guitars in the chorus I enjoyed as well. So yeah, that it wasn't necessarily a standout track, but it was it was one that I did enjoy, and I do like listening to when it comes on. One thing I really struggle with on this is that the chorus reminds me of, I think, Every Day by Bon Jovi. And every time I hear it, I can't get that out of my head. I'm pretty sure it's Every Day. Sing Every Day to us, Andy. What does that go like? I can't remember how it goes right now. Talking of comparisons to other songs, does the middle eight bit of this, honestly, go and listen to it. And it sounds like something off Super Unknown by Soundgarden. I yeah. fully appreciate that as you sit there. Now you might be thinking, you can't think of that bit. And also to the people listening. However, I'll put a lovely clip here. it was and um, yeah honestly it sounds totally like something that would be off Soundgarden's um, Super Unknown album which is another reason to love it so that's cool it was originally called Give It Away but for some reason they changed it I remember when they they, they showed the the track listing for the album and this it was I'm sure it was under Give It Away last minute change maybe it's like oh no don't want to be like Red Hot Chili Peppers Imagine, Ben, if when you met Phil Collin, like you did the other week in a guitar shop in Dublin, and you had a lovely conversation with him and got a lovely picture of him. Imagine if your question to him was, why did you change the name of Gotta Let It Go from Give It Away on the Songs from the Sparkle Lounge album? I wonder how he would have answered that. I wonder if that would have killed the conversation dead. 
I'll tell you what, it probably would have been a better question to ask him than what I did ask, as I was fangirling away. <laughs> All right then. Okay, so we've come to the end of side two. So we're going to pick a song from side two to go on the Death Leopard Ultimate Death Leopard playlist. Raj, you've now lost your um, new arrival privilege of essentially oh, getting man. a song because we're on to side two. It's a completely different thing now. It's not a different episode. We're going to pick a song from side two of songs from the Sparkle Lounge. I'll just remind you of what those songs are. Cruise Control. <laughs> Sounds like a reading of the football scores. Queen's Park Rangers 2. Right, okay. Cruise Control, Hallucinate, Only the Good Die Young, Bad Actress, Come Undone, Gotta Let It Go. So there's six songs uh, to pick from this time. Okay, so... Have your first choice, have your contingency choice. Ben, I'll come to you first. What song would you go for? I would probably go for Bad Actress as my first choice. I think it's the strongest. My contingency would be uh, Only the Good Die Young for a good Vivian Campbell representation. Raj, what would your choice be? I'm going to be right in line with Ben um, and hoping that Bad Actress showing up on this playlist will get it back in the set list. Um, you know, I was surprised Leopard didn't include it on this last tour, because if you were ever going to include it, doing it on a tour with the crew and with Poison would have been perfect, honestly. Um, but yeah, I'll put Bad Actress first, and then Only the Good Die Young is my contingency. Okay, thank you very much, Raj. And then moving over to Andy, what would your choice be? Mine, mine are totally different to those two. Uh, Cruise Control, probably no surprise. Love that song. Um, and then the next one will be Come and Done. I don't know what to do with this information, right? Okay, so this has never happened before. I mean, well, to be honest, I suppose it's fairly straightforward. We've had two bad actresses. What would I do? I'd be between bad actress, come undone, and cruise control. So do you know what? Nobody wants to hear an old man struggling on a podcast. So let's just make the choice. We're going to go for bad actress because we had two people who picked bad actress. So we're going to go for that. Are you all right with that, Andy? Are we still friends? Yeah, good choice, good song. Okay, excellent. All right, then. So we went for Go on the first side. We went for Bad Actress on the second side. We are shortly going to wrap up. Before we do, I'm going to open the floor for any other business to do with songs from the Sparkle Lounge, should you choose to have any other business. It just reminds me of a, of a cool time when, um, yeah, like Raj was saying, it seemed Death Leopard were coming back, back into it a bit more. I was certainly seeing them more on, on, on TV in the UK and then um, had more of a presence online as well. It was quite an exciting time for me. It was the tour where I first saw them live um, in Glasgow. Uh, so it was, it was a really fun time. It's just a shame that maybe when I re-listen to the album, I just, I just I can't quite get into it as much because of the sonics, because of the production. But I do, I do like the songs on there. And um, yeah, just more so a nostalgia for... For, for a certain time period it, it takes me back to, which is which is always nice. Yeah, I think we've all sort of touched on, it was kind of a period where um, it kind of rejuvenated him. So I think I just wanted just to briefly, just sort of I say briefly, this could be a load of waffle here, but, you know, just touch on what was going on because, you know, we mentioned that, you know, 2008, they needed to release new music. And I think at that time there was, there was a lot of sort of unrest if you like, amongst the sort of the online community, you know, people weren't happy that they were touring with no music. Because bear in mind, this is the start of 
2005, six, and seven was when they were starting touring with no album. So, you know, they were, they were touring no music. They were concentrating a lot on America. Um, they'd released a covers album. So I think, you know, releasing Sparkle Andrew when they did was a, was a good choice. And then when you look at what happened after that, certainly in America, you know, you've got a whole list of stuff. You had the rock line appearance where it's pretty unprecedented that they, they played, I think, seven tracks in full straight off, off the bat from that album a good month or so before it was out. So they'd not done that before, you know, for better or worse, he had the tie-in with the NBA, whether that worked or not is another thing. But then later on, you know, in the country thing, the, uh, they ended up with a Taylor Swift collaboration in 2008. And then they appeared with her again in 2009 at those awards. Um, you've got the Dancing with Stars promo that they did with Nine Lives, which was a massive show, I think, in America. Obviously, we've got the the uh, the English equivalent over here. Um, you know, the touring in 08 and 09. So, you know, that carried on over over in America as well. And if you remember, they did the NHL Rocks show where it was a mini concert. I think that was the one where Joe put the Stanley Cup upside down, which caused a bit of a Ferrari. But I think the biggest games, and I think from our point of view, what we've spoke about before, Neil, was, was here, was here in, in England because... It was a time period where they couldn't get arrested. Probably, you know, they were out of arenas. They, they were only playing little little uh, little venues. The Yeah Tour. They only did a couple of shows. So I think you know, in terms of decisions made by management over here, you could look at the fact that they they released the new album. They're on the um, the Abbey Road show, which which Ben mentioned, which was quite a big show because there was a lot of different artists that were on there. So that was a big deal. You've got the Songs from the Sparkle Lounge launch party show, which tied in with Guitar Hero, which at the time was massive. You've got all the press and the media at the time who were giving the album good reviews all over. And also that show got great reviews because that was covered in all the major magazines as well. The record company did a co-headline tour over here. Sorry, the management put them with Whitesnake for a co-headline tour where they were in arenas. So they were back in arenas for the first time and it sold so well that they came back uh, about a month later for some more shows. You know, they had Blackstone Cherry out with them. They had Thunder with them. So that was a big deal. And let's also not forget that the songs from the Sparkle Lounge era leads the year after when the tour was carrying on to them playing the biggest show ever that they've ever done over here, which was at uh, Download in 2009, which was a massive event for them. They were back in Australia for the first time in 16 years or so, playing over mm-hmm. there. So I think, you know, is it in general, the album, I think, just gave them a sort of massive shot in the arm. And you could argue that the songs of the Sparkle you carries on over all the way up to 2011 because Mirable was taken from that tour. You know, they recorded yeah. that tour, there's songs from the album on there. So even though the album might not be looked at favourably now, I think you can't really deny that it was much needed. And it's a, a sort of a, a stepping stone, if you like, to putting them where they are now and I think overall I think they made pretty good decisions in what they did so there you go Andy has spoken Raj has spoken Ben has spoken not a perfect album by any means but certainly one that reflects an interesting period reflects the start of a new phase of Def Leppard and pretty much is the first step that takes them to where they are today which is pretty much as big as they've ever been. So next time you go to listen to a Def Leppard album, which I know for all of you will be very soon, maybe don't reach for Hysteria. Maybe don't reach for Pyromania. 
Maybe don't reach for high and dry or one of the ones that you know inside out. Why don't you go sit down in your own sparkle lounge and give this album a little go. So until next time, see you later.